Happy Mother's Day, moms, every mom that's out there. And happy Mother's Day to my mom, if you watch online, and to my wife, the mother of my children. Happy Mother's Day. And to each one of you, uh, thank you so much for being here. And if you're not a mom, you have a mom. And so hopefully you can tell her today that you're thankful for her and that you love her. And even if that means a phone call or something, some of you, I know that's a difficult relationship with your parents. Um, She gave birth to you at least, so you can tell her thank you for that and that you're here. And uh, for the rest of us, they've sacrificed in many ways that we don't realize or know and loved us in, in so many different ways. So make sure you tell God thank you for them and tell them you're thankful for them today. And many of you uh, here today, like myself, are not mothers, uh, but we're glad that you're here as well. If you're a guest today with us, maybe the first time or first couple times you've been here today and you've never filled out the card in your worship program, if you wouldn't mind looking at your worship program right now, there's a little card in there. We call it a connection card. If you wouldn't mind filling it out for us and taking out the first-time guest kiosk, we've got a gift for you. And then also today we have Discovering Southbridge. And so if you're newer to our church, and uh, maybe you and I have never met in person before, or you'd like to meet my wife, she'll be out there with me too, uh, we would love to meet you out in the blue tent out in the lobby after the service for Discovering Southbridge. And so we'd love to meet you out there today. And we're going to take a little break from the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts for a while together as a church, and we're going to be in the book of Genesis today, a special message for moms. And so we'll be in Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll open up the scriptures together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I just uh, come before you and ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning. I pray that you would uh, encourage moms. I pray that you would give them strength and peace and power that can only come from you and encourage them to know that we love them, that we care for them, but more than that, that you do. And I pray you'd meet with them today. And I pray for those that are not moms today, that you'd give an encounter with you, that we'd be connected to you, that you'd love us, that you'd show us yourself, that you'd reveal your character, and that we'd see you, maybe we'd see you in a new way, and that you'd transform us and draw us to yourself. I pray for those who don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray for those who do know you, that you'd encourage us and move us, chisel away the sin in our life, and mold us into the, the people you desire for us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, moms, you get to see a lot of wonderful things, don't you? Think about all the stuff you see as a parent and all the things you get to see in the lives of your kids. You get to see them the first time outside of the womb, and you get to see them take their first steps. Maybe you get to hear them say their first words. Maybe you get to see them go off to their first day of school, and maybe someday you'll even see them leave the home, and some of you have had that challenge blessing, depends where you're at in that stage of what happens at that moment. But you see some wonderful things, and you also probably see some weird things if your kids are anything like our kids. We've got... Uh, four little girls. One of them likes to eat dog food for some reason. We feed them. I promise. Don't have to come ask me about this after service. We feed them regular food, but we have a dog dish, and she wants to go, and she wants to eat out of the dog dish. We've got another daughter. We've caught her sucking on her toes before. Asked her, why are you sucking on your toes? Because they itch. Not only is that disgusting, that's just weird. Like, why are you doing that? No one taught you how to do that. You can just see weird stuff when you're a parent. You have a front row seat to all the things that your kids do. You get to see a lot. I had an experience last week I was sharing with, we did baby dedications at the church office after last Sunday service, and if you were in here early today, you saw the baby dedication video that was there, and I was talking to all those families about discipling our children. We were in Deuteronomy 6, and talking about teaching our kids stuff, and no matter what you teach them, sometimes they come up with different stuff, and I was, I was leaving the service uh, last Sunday, preached two messages, and had a guy walk up to me and say, I'd like to talk to you about your theology. Now, usually when that happens, I'm thinking, oh boy, like where's this going to go? What did I say that was controversial? I don't know exactly what's going to happen at that moment. And the gentleman serves in our church. He actually played guitar this morning. His name's Adam Talbot, and he was last week working at Bridge Kids teaching the four-year-old class. I have a four-year-old. He said, I want to talk to you about what you're teaching in your home. And so I thought, oh boy, it was something one of my kids said. It wasn't something that I said. That's a little bit safer for me. And he said, I asked the class yesterday, or uh, this morning, he said, I asked the class, what happens when you die? And he said, and your four-year-old daughter, Janie, said, you go to hell to be with Jesus. 
That's not what we're teaching at our house. Okay, some people go to hell. Some people go to be with Jesus. They're not the same thing that's happening there. But they say stuff, don't they? And they do stuff. And you get to see it all. I was playing with one of my daughters. Our two-year-old daughter is at this stage right now where she thinks when she's hiding, if she covers her face, that you can't see her. And so she'll hide like under the bed or whatever behind a chair. And, and as long as she's got her head covered, her whole body can be sticking out. But as long as her head's covered. And so we're playing hide and seek yesterday at a park. She covers her eyes. She just goes, I hiding, I hiding. And she thinks because she can't see me that I can't see her. And you know, as a parent, you get to see a lot of stuff. Today, we're going to be talking about the God, our heavenly father who sees us. The message today is titled, The God Who Sees. And my hope for you is that you will get to see the God who sees you and cares for you and responds to you, that you will respond to him. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 16, the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16, and we're going to be talking about a character named Hagar, who's a mom. She's just found out she's going to be a mom, actually, in this passage of Scripture. And there are two other main characters in this passage, one called Sarai, one named Abram. Now, they're more popular names you've maybe heard before, Abraham and Sarah. The reason why they're called Abram and Sarai here is they haven't, there's going to be an encounter that they have with God later where he changes their names as a new beginning for them. He transforms everything about them. Up till this point, he's called them to come follow him, though, back in Genesis chapter 12. And he says he's going to bless them, and he's, he's going to bless them with children. The problem is when God gives them a promise that they're going to have children, and they're going to have more children than the sand on the seashore, they're going to have descendants, they're going to have a people group that becomes the mother and father of. Problem is Abraham's... 75 years old when he receives that promise. And his wife Sarah, or Sarai at this point, is 65 years old, and they haven't had any children yet. But they go on their way of following God where he's leading them to the promised land and then take a little detour out, and they, they pick up some wealth. They get some maidservants, some men servants, and one of them is Hagar, and that happened about 10 years before this passage of Scripture. And look what happens in this passage of Scripture as we get a glimpse into their lives and we see the God who sees Verse 1, chapter 16, says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's the setting. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. This would be like her personal assistant. She wasn't necessarily doing labor out in fields here, but she was owned by this couple, so she belonged to them. But she was like a personal assistant to Sarai, a wealthy woman in this family. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. That's her female master, her mistress. She began to get a little more pep in her step around the house. She realized she was a little bit more important. Now that she's starting to show this baby here, she's able to do what Sarai's not able to do. Then Sarai said to Abram, You're responsible for the wrong I am suffering. (laughs) That doesn't even make sense, but okay. Uh, I put my servant in your arms. Okay, so you did. Okay, okay. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me, Sarai says to Abram. Then Abram says, your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. And so now Hagar is really introduced into the story. She's been there as a passive participant, but now look at Hagar. So she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, 
And the angel of the Lord, uh, many Christians believe, is the pre-incarnate Christ. And by pre-incarnate Christ, I mean Jesus before he came into this earth and put on flesh, before he came at Bethlehem. And we see appearances of 48 references in the Old Testament of the angel of the Lord. Interesting, we don't ever see the angel of the Lord mentioned after Jesus is born in the New Testament. And so we believe this is, I believe this is Jesus that shows up here. The angel of the Lord, and this is the first time it happened, found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. She's on her way back to Egypt, is what's happening here. She's been wounded. She's been hurt. And now she's doing what many people do when they're hurt. She's going to what's familiar. She's going to what she knows. It might not be the best decision for her, but she's on her way back to Egypt. And he said, the angel of the Lord did, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she answers, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child. You will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So here's this woman, Hagar, who's an Egyptian, we're told in verse 1. So she's from a different land, a different people group. And she gets taken as a maidservant to serve this couple. She lives with them for 10 years. She probably not only worked for them, but with them, and she's probably grown to love them. She's learned this new culture and been around them, realizes this, this is a couple who loves God, but then she gets objectified. She gets used and abused, and the text says she's mistreated. She experiences incredible pain, and so she runs, and then God shows up. And she has an encounter with the living God out in the desert, out in the wilderness. And she says, and she's the first character in the Bible to give God a name, the first human to attribute a name to God. You are the God who sees. But not only did God see her, but she says, to the God who sees me, the God that I've seen. Now, the language of the text tells us she probably didn't physically see God here, but she knew his presence, and God spoke to her in this situation. And she says, I've seen the one who now sees me. And today we're talking about the God who sees. And here's the thing about the God who sees. He sees everything. He sees past. He sees present. He sees future. He sees sin, he sees service, he sees sacrifice, he sees our worship, he sees our work, he sees everything that we do. He sees every part of our lives, which can be terrifying and can be comforting. It's terrifying as a sinner, which we all are, by the way. We're all sinners. Sin is what separates us from God. It's when we rebel against God. It's when we do our own thing. And that means there's hostility between us and God. There's a barrier there that he has to pour his wrath out on. And that's terrifying when you think about the fact that you can't get away with anything. He sees our sin. He sees all of it, which makes me think of my mom. I don't know what your mom was like, but did your mom just know stuff? Like, how did she know stuff as a mom? Did you ever, it's like she had eyes in the back of her head. Did you ever hear that statement before? Do you have a mom that you could walk into the room and she'd say, where are you going? She never turned around and looked. Like, how did that, how did she, you didn't, how did you even know I was here, much less that I'm leaving? You know, I just sneaking out. Or worse yet, my mom would say to me sometimes this statement, I wouldn't do that if I were you. How'd you know I was doing anything, much less that I'm doing something wrong? I was telling first service, I remember a time, I was thinking about some of my stories with my mom. I remember a time when I was about 15 years old, my friends and I stole a car. Don't recommend this if you're a teenager, don't say, well, the pastor did it. Okay, don't do that. 
friends and I were over this girl's house. Her parents were out of town for the weekend. We decided we were going to take their car and drive it around for the weekend. So my friends and I drive this car around. We're not old enough to do that. I get home. My mom says, were you out in such and such's car with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? Let me tell you something. That was not a random question by my mom. She just knew stuff. Or one time I, I snuck and look at presents when I was a real little kid. And she knew. Is it like, like surveillance cameras in my house? Like, how do you know this stuff? She saw. So I couldn't get away with some things that I'd like to get away with. And God sees our sin too. Which means nothing's done in secret. The things that are done in the dark will be brought to light one day. We'll give an account for everything in our lives. Which can be very terrifying. Unless you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Who, the reason why Jesus came to this earth was so that he could be the sacrifice for those sins, so that he could take on God's wrath, the thing that separates us from God, and then we can be reconciled to him. So you had that sin forgiven to hear that God sees everything is incredibly comfortable. In fact, it's comforting because that means he sees every pain in your life too. He sees every struggle you go through. He sees every difficulty that you're in now. He sees the past, he sees the present, he sees the future, he sees in this world we will have troubles. He promises there will be troubles. He sees all the troubles. He sees all the stress. He sees all the things that have been done to us, all the things that have happened in our lives, all the things that have happened around us, all the words that have been spoken, all the situations that have taken place. And today through this passage of Scripture, while he sees everything, we're going to talk about how he sees the struggle and he sees the future. The first is that he sees the struggle. Now, there's a struggle for all of us. And since today's Mother's Day, just think about as a mom. What are your struggles as a mom? We know there are struggles as a mom, so don't just smile and pretend like there aren't. It's a thing that begins with labor, okay? So it's work. Some of you, your last break was an epidural, so we understand that being a mom can be tough, can't it? Like, just the idea of Mother's Day is awesome, but it can be a lot of pressure. Like, some of you are sitting there hoping, I hope he doesn't turn to Proverbs 31. I hope he doesn't talk about heroic moms. I hope he doesn't talk about all the good things that moms do, because you feel inadequate, because you think about how you've blown it. You think about how you lose your temper. You think about how you don't have patience. You think about how you weren't good enough, don't measure up. All the other moms do. And if your kid had said something on the thing, what would they have said? And all, that, all the thoughts that you might have, it's a struggle. And some of you have struggles like we see in this passage. Some of you, if you're here today and your struggle is infertility, let me just say I'm proud of you for being brave enough to come to church today. And some of you have recently maybe lost children in a miscarriage. That's a struggle though, isn't it? Some of you maybe have given children up in adoption, and so you think about those children today, and that's a struggle. Some of you have aborted children. That's a struggle. Do you struggle with? No. And some of you, maybe it's not mom issues. I'm not a mom. I got struggles. So the rest of you, we talked about last week, the spiritual battle that we're in. We fight against our flesh. We fight against the devil. We fight against this world system. We fight against sin itself. And so there's a battle that goes on. There's a continual struggle. And life is a struggle. There are struggles. In this world, you will have trouble. And God sees. God sees the struggle. And he saw the struggle in this passage. And it starts with Sarai. Before you even get to Hagar, you see that Sarai's struggling. Verse 1, the very first half, it says, Now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. Her struggle was infertility. Her struggle was that she couldn't have children. Now add to that the culture that she lives in. See, some of you are not able to have children. And and the longing you have, the rest of us can't understand it. The longing that you have for children, we don't get it. But it's a strong longing. Sarah knew that that longing. She wanted children too. Now plus the fact that she lived in a culture where having a bunch of children was considered a success. If you had no children, you're considered a failure. But it's not just like a, an achievement issue. It was a spiritual issue. 
So they didn't know things that we know about medicine and science and all that stuff. Now, then they thought that if you didn't have children, you were a woman, you were cursed by God. You did something wrong. And so here is essentially the mother of our faith, Sarai. But everyone around her believes that God hates her. That she's cursed by God. And she lives in a culture where she's now 75 years old. She's been married to Abram this whole time. But Abram, he could have divorced her. He could have left her just because she couldn't have children. That was the culture they lived in. She so desperately wants children. Look at the conclusion she comes up with. But she said she had an Egyptian maidservant, next part of the verse, named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord's kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And so she's been married to Abram. They're now 75 and 85 years old. For however many decades they've been married to one another in a monogamous relationship, like it's described in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, one man, one woman, been faithful to one another. She's willing to sacrifice all of that and that intimacy and the faithfulness she's had with the love of her life because of this longing for children. There's a struggle. And so she suggests... Take my maidservant, Hagar, who's probably maybe a teenager, maybe in her early 20s. So take this, you know, 20-year-old personal assistant that I have and use her as a surrogate mother. Now, here's the deal. To us, this sounds scandalous. It's like a Jerry Springer episode that we got going on here. To them, this was not only acceptable, this was the custom of the day. This was expected, not only acceptable, but expected that you would do this. In fact, there are ancient marriage uh, contracts that we found, archaeologists have found. They've dug them up. Before people got married, they would even write a contract that said, if the wife, insert name, is not able to have a child within this many years, then the husband can then take another woman to come into the marriage, and she'll be a surrogate, and they'll have a child, and then they take the child to be their own. So that woman doesn't get to keep the child that bore the child. And that was expected of them. Here's the problem. That wasn't God's plan we got God's plan back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. One man, one woman. He gives Abraham a promise. You're going to have a child. Through your body, you're going to have a child. But what happens here is that Sarai does the same thing Eve does in the garden. In fact, if you read Genesis chapter 16, it's parallel to Genesis chapter 3. The verbs are the same throughout the passage. The author of this intentionally made Genesis 16 parallel Genesis chapter 3. What happens is there's a woman, a wife, who sees something that she thinks is good. It's outside of God's plan. Then she, verb, takes that thing. Then she, then another verb, gives that thing to her husband. Then her husband takes that thing for himself to enjoy. And then there's a fleeing scene where God then comes, show, comes and shows up and asks questions that he knows the answers to. It's the exact parallel to Genesis chapter 3, what takes place here. And so she sees something. What do we oftentimes do in our struggle? We know a good way out, don't we? What is your struggle? You've got a plan. If you, if you could just get God to agree to your plan, then you'd be all set, wouldn't you? And so that's where Sarai's at. And she's got a plan. She comes up with it. Now here's Abraham's opportunity to lead. Abraham, the father of our faith. Abraham, our spiritual hero. Here's what he does. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. You dope? What are you doing, man? You know what we have a picture of here? Adam. We have a picture of a passive man. I guess he just went with happy wife, happy life, you know, just kind of do the thing. What he should have done is he said, no, 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 God said, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, one man, one woman. So if he wants to do it, he's going to do it. He's the creator of life. He can create life in you. It doesn't matter how old you are. He doesn't do that. Socially acceptable, culturally acceptable, God said no. He doesn't lead. You know what's real interesting? And men, you can do this as some homework. Go read Genesis chapter 14. 
Abram has just chased down four kings, whipped their butts, brought his lot back, and comes back to his family. He's, he's not a passive man, but he is in the home. And if you can identify with that, you need to repent. This is a rebuke. It's a Mother's Day message, but for you men, rebuke. Reject the passivity in your home. You are not doing what God wants you to do if you are winning at work and failing in the home. Abraham blows it here. It's the biggest mistake he makes in his life. Okay, I'll go sleep with her. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah's wife took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. Euphemism here. He slept with her. They didn't sleep. She conceived. You can figure that out. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And now she's got a little leverage against Sarai. What she's doing is not right either. She starts to show off. Maybe she's starting to become rounded in her figure and she's showing off that she's able to do what Sarai has not been able to do. Then Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering, which is illogical, right? Like if you're Abram, you're thinking, wait, I just did what you told me to do and it's it's happening the way you said it would happen. And then she says, I, first person, I put my servant in your arms. So she's blaming him. Don't argue logic here. That's the best thing he doesn't do in this passage. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram's going, we both blew it. Like, that's what happened here. He's got an opportunity to lead again. But look what happens. Verse 6, passive man again. Your servant is in your hands. You deal with it, woman. Abram said, do with her whatever you think is best. Notice he doesn't say do with her whatever you want. Use your discernment, Sarah. Use your wisdom. You do with her whatever you think is best. That's not what she does. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now it's Hagar's story. Try to imagine what it was like to be Hagar. She's mistreated. The word for mistreated there is the same word that gets used in the book of Exodus when the Egyptians are abusing, giving more work and less resources to the Israelites, whipping them. We don't know exactly what Sarai did to abuse, to mistreat Hagar here because the text doesn't tell us. But it's the same word that's used for slavery later. The oppression that's happening there. So was she verbally abusive? Was she physically abusive? Did she demand uh, more results from Hagar that she couldn't possibly have, have met up to? The pressure was too much for her. And so try and imagine what it was like to be Hagar here. She was taken out of her culture. It says in verse 1, she's an Egyptian. She comes from a different culture, a proud culture, a well-resourced culture. And she comes and lives with a group of people that live in tents and travel around to different places that speak a different language, eat different food, wear different clothes, have different customs, live in a different culture. And she's been doing that for 10 years. You know, my friend, a member of our church, Angram Lotz, has written a book called Wounded by God's People. Recommend the book. In the book, she talks about some of her own wounds, and she talks about Hagar throughout the whole book. She, She makes a great observation about something that happens in this passage. Sarai is praised in the New Testament for her faith. She's a hero of our faith. She's the one who causes the wounds in this passage. Some of you, your struggle, your woundedness, your pain comes from people within the church. You think about your greatest pain. Some of you have been wounded by God's people. You've been hurt by other Christians. That's the very thing that's happened here with Hagar. Hagar is fleeing because she can't take the abuse she's getting from a godly couple, Abram and Sarai. She's been living with them for 10 years, the text tells us. So you don't just work 
for someone for 10 years, you start to work with them. You develop a relationship with them. You begin to speak their language. You understand their culture, their customs. She's probably seen Abraham build altars to his God. She's seen Abraham be generous. She's seen Abraham do things in the name of the Lord over the last 10 years. And now she experiences this. Something else that you see in this passage of scripture is what Abraham and Sarai do. They objectify this woman. Go back, read the first six verses. Never from the lips of Abraham or Sarai do you hear the name Hagar. It's your servant, my maid servant, this woman. Because it's easy to hurt someone when you objectify them and you forget they're a real person. And some of you are guilty of doing that. And Hagar's experienced that pain. And we don't know what the abuse is, but she takes off in the desert. Remember, she's pregnant. Ever been on a road trip with your kids in the car when you're pregnant? She's traveled, it tells us in verse 7, to a place, a spring, and sure, it's probably about 70 miles from where Abraham had been camping out. She's traveled probably for about a week. Remember, she doesn't have an Odyssey minivan with a DVD player in the back and air conditioning. She's walking. There's no good berries along the way in case she gets a craving. It's a pregnant woman here. Come on, we're family. We can talk about this. What you really wanted? Barbecue last time, I think. Last baby. Barbecue and ice cream, I'm sure. So you put them together. She can't get that. But what happens is the Lord shows up. The angel of the Lord begins to speak to her. And they have this conversation about her future, about her child. And then she gives the Lord this name. She's the first one to name the Lord in the Bible. In verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And what we see all throughout the scripture is that God sees. You go to Genesis chapter 1. He creates and it says he saw and it was good. And then there's a pattern. Saw and it was good. Saw and it was good. Saw and it was good. And then he saw and it wasn't good. And what does God do? He provides in that situation. It's also a pattern you see through the scripture. He sees and it's good. And he sees and it's good. He takes delight in that. But when he sees and it's not good, when he sees us in our struggle, what does he do then? He provides. You get to Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Moses has an experience. His people have been in oppression. That same word that was used, the misery word. They've been living in misery. In Exodus chapter 3, there's a burning bush experience where God speaks to Moses. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm concerned about their suffering. In the book of Exodus, about him doing something about what he's seen. You look at Jesus in the New Testament. Before he does miracles, before he touches people, before he feeds people, what does he do? He sees them. Luke chapter 7, great passage of scripture. There's a woman who's a widow, and her only son has just died. And the first thing the text tells us about Jesus, it says that Jesus saw her. And then he's moved with compassion, concerned, like in this Exodus passage. You see, in another situation, Jesus is getting tired. He's got these crowds all around him. They're always wanting him to do stuff. And so he gets in a boat with his disciples. He wants to be alone with his disciples. And he gets off this boat after taking a journey to try and ditch the crowd. The crowd shows up and says that he saw the crowd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were hurting and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And that's what he saw. He didn't just see faces of people that are trying to take something from him. He saw their needs. The word see in the Old Testament is parallel to provide. In fact, the verb for provide in the Hebrew, which is the, what the Old Testament is written in, is in the Hebrew language. The verb to provide means to see to it. It's the same idea as that you see something. God doesn't just see something in our lives like he's aware of it. He provides for it. The, the, the name of God, some of you may have heard before in the Old Testament, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. 
It's the Lord sees to it, very literally. In Genesis chapter 22, later, what happens is 15 years after this passage of Scripture is that Sarai and Abraham have a, have a child. And then Abraham's taking this child up on this mountain to do a sacrifice. And you know, it's a pretty intense scene if you've heard the story. And the son, Isaac, asks, Dad, where's the sacrifice? He says, the Lord himself will see to it that there's a ram. He'll provide. To see means to provide by the Lord. And what has God done in our lives? He's seen the greatest need in our lives, our sin. And he provided by giving his own son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice so that we could be reconciled to him. And you know what Paul says in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8 then? Romans chapter 8 says this. You can think about your struggle right now. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Listen, if he would give up his son to meet your greatest need, then in the current modern-day struggle that you're having right now, won't he provide everything that you need? Won't he come into that situation? Won't he take care of that? And that's what he does here with Sarah. You think about what happens with Sarah. She comes, and then all of a sudden she's taken up with the fact that God's seen me, and I've seen him. You know what? That doesn't change any of the circumstances. In fact, the angel of the Lord told her, go back to those circumstances. Go back to the abuse. Go back to the struggle. Go back to the pain. He didn't just fix it. But all of a sudden you see this healing in her life where she's worshiping God. The God who sees, I've seen the one who sees me. So what's happened in our lives is a lot like what happens to some of us physically. If you have any scars physically on your body, then you know what I'm talking about. I've got different scars. I was thinking about them this morning. i got one on my arm over here from a, a football helmet just tearing off a piece of flesh. We're doing a drill one time when I was in high school. I, remember I've had, I have one I saw in the mirror underneath my eye. I remember from when I was a little kid. And I called my mom to talk about it this morning. We haven't been able to talk about it yet. But she definitely probably gets the story. Because what ended up happening was I was in elementary school. So those of you who have elementary age kids, or maybe you remember when you were in elementary school, I was playing on the monkey bars that are like a half dome. Have you ever seen those? It's kind of like a you know, cut in half ball that's on the ground, and you can climb on the inside of the monkey bars, you can climb on the outside of the monkey bars, and it must have been like our whole class was playing on this thing, because a bunch of us got inside. There were too many kids inside of the monkey bars. And I went over to the edge, and somebody pushed me from behind, smacked my face on the monkey bars, put this scar underneath my eye that I still have to this day. I'm 37 years old now, still have this scar. I can remember walking to my teacher and having blood in my eyes and on my hands and and going in and I was crying and it hurt. Now, when I saw that scar in the mirror this morning, it didn't hurt. Now, there's still a mark there and I still have a memory from what happened. But God's taken away the pain. Hagar, in our passage, she still knows the mistreatment that Sarai did. She still knows the disappointment in God's people. She still suffered whatever the verbal abuse was, whatever the unfair labor was, whatever maybe the physical abuse was. But when God showed up, it's like the pain went away. Because God heals. It doesn't mean it undoes what happened. It doesn't mean that you forget. There may still be scars, but the pain is gone. This is the way he says it himself from his word. Let me read you some verses. Psalm 147 verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted. And bounds up their wounds. Peter, who knew what it was to be wounded, says in First Peter chapter 5, verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Some of my favorite words from Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Some of you need rest. He sees, but it doesn't just mean that he's aware. 
Of course he knows. But sometimes we can feel like, but are you, why are you forsaking me in this? Why are you leaving me here? Why am I out in the wilderness if you're Hagar? Why did you leave me with that woman? Why is that woman your woman? Why? And instead, he shows up. I don't know what your struggle is. But he provides in the struggle. Scott, are you saying that if I'm infertile, he's going to give me a child? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying he'll give you exactly what you need. Are you saying if I'm single, he'll give me a spouse? No, I'm not saying that. Do you say, and some of you, let's be real candid, you're in a marriage and you want to be single. Are you saying he's going to fix that? No. What I'm saying is he's going to give you exactly what you need. Let me read you that Romans 8 passage again. Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's going to give us all the things that we need. In that situation, you know what, you know what Hagar got? She didn't get her problems all fixed. In fact, she's told to go back to her problems. She got him. And like we sang earlier, he was enough. He was enough to be her peace. He was enough to be her strength. He was enough to be her prize. He was enough to be her reward. He was enough to give her the ability to walk back into the difficult situation and to live through the struggle. Will he give us? He gave us a son. He will give us himself. You have to answer, is that enough? He sees your struggle. He doesn't just see it. He provides in it. Not only does he see your struggle, he sees your future. That's what we also see in this passage of Scripture. You go back up to verse 7. And he meets her in her struggle, but he talks to her about her future. The angel of the Lord shows up at the spring at Shur. And then verse 8, read verse 8 with me. It says, and he said, it's the angel of the Lord, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Which is interesting to me. I believe this is Jesus Christ and he's the end before the beginning and he knows all the stuff and he's, you know, knows everything, knows the hairs on our head. He knows the answer to this question. And when God comes looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, he knows the answer to the questions he's asking them. He's asking for her sake. Why are you asking a question you know the answer to? Because for her sake, that she'll answer. And look at what the question was. Where have you come from? Where are you going? She doesn't talk about where she's going. Look at the answer. Don't talk about her future. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. I'm just getting away from the problems of my past. She answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, here's a command. Go back. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, I try to put myself in the place of Hagar in this passage of scripture this week. And I read that line and I wanted to respond with, are you crazy? Go back. Then I reminded myself, this is the angel of the Lord. If Jesus himself was speaking to me, I wouldn't say, are you crazy? Like, are you kidding? Go back. Go back to the struggle. Go back to the pain. Go back to the abuse. That's not counsel most of us would give. But God knows stuff we don't know. God's thoughts and our thoughts are not the same thoughts. And he's got a plan that we don't always know how the plan's supposed to work. See, we think we know what he should be doing. And that's what causes the greatest problems in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. It gets a new social status update. It gets complicated for them once this takes place. And so he's telling Hagar, you don't do what you think you should do. Run back to Egypt. I want you to go back. Obey my command. And then he gives a promise. Here's why you would obey this command. Promise. Remember, we talked about this last week and the spiritual battle. What are the things we get? We get commands, we get promises. Commands make us love sin less, love God more. Promises are what we cling to, to believe that God's going to fulfill, even in circumstances where it doesn't seem like he's answering his promise. It doesn't seem like he's keeping his promise. In fact, if you put yourself in Sarah's position, it almost sounds like the promise makes things worse. You promised we'd have a child. It's been 10 years. We still don't have a child. Why didn't you just answer it way back then? 
He said, I want you to be faithful. And look at why she would be faithful. No one in their right mind would go back to Sarai. But then God tells her, I will reward you. The angel added, verse 10, here's the promise. I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Here's why. Future reward. Why would we do any of the things that God tells us to do other than just he says to do it, which some people think that's enough motivation, but you know what? God gives us more. God tells us in the scriptures continually, here, I want you to do stuff that's really difficult stuff. You wouldn't do it on your own. You wouldn't have even thought of doing this had you not read the scriptures. But here's what I want you to do, and it's difficult, like go back to the struggle, go back to the pain, go back to your past, because I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward you for being faithful. I'm going to reward you for doing difficult stuff. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures here on earth. He's continually putting reward before us. He tells, he tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. Here's a verse for you moms. If anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, ever done that, mom? A cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple? I tell you the truth. Even the smallest activity, he will certainly not lose his reward. So not only does God see every sin the son that no one else knows about. He sees every service that's done that no one else knows about. And he rewards in the future. There's a future. Why do moms do some of the stuff they do? It's not just because it's fun to get puked on, by the way. Dads, in case you're wondering. It's not, you know, I did, I did a little reading last year for Mother's Day, and I read a website, salary.com. And they tell you about what people should make in different careers and different professions and all those types of things. And they're talking about moms and all the things that moms do. And I can testify to this at my house. Culinary expert, you know, medical expert, janitorial expert, able to, you know, counsel, therapist, all that stuff. And they took all the things and the amount of time they spent doing this. So the average mom, this full-time mom, spends 92 hours a week doing and then all these activities said that she should make $138,000 a year. So take her to lunch today. <laughs> She's working for free and it's awesome. Uh, but who signs up to do that? There's a viral video that went on a couple weeks ago. Um, maybe you've seen it on t- online. You just go to YouTube, you can probably find it. The thing's called the worst job ever or something. And there's a fake company um, trying to hire people for a cheap operational officer, I think, at their company. And they describe all the stuff that's expected. You work extra on holidays and you're all on call all the time and all the things that moms do. They describe as the job description. The people don't know that's what they're doing. At the end, people say, is that legal? No, no one would do this job. Do you think anyone's going to do this job? And then they say, it doesn't pay anything. And they, and they think, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. No one's taking this job. And they say, they're talking about moms. Why would moms do this? You know what? There's a future reward. And you, you know there's a future reward. And the things that happen with your kids, Lord willing, you know, no discipline's pleasant at the time. But in the end, what happens? It's a harvest of righteousness, you hope. And there are rewards in heaven for that. And you know what? That's true not just for moms. That's true for everyone that serves. I know many people in our church serve. And, and a lot of people don't even realize you do it. God knows. He sees. Why do it? Why do, why do the difficult stuff? Why do the difficult things here? Because anything here is temporary. It's momentary affliction, Paul tells us. And there is a future reward that will take place. God sees it all. And there is a future for these things. Not just for moms. How about this passage from Hebrews? In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and you continue to help them. There will be a future reward. So he tells her, you go back. Go back. Who would do that? Who would go back? Well, she says, if you go back, there's a, there's a promise for you. You, cling, you obey the command. You cling to the promise. You're going to have more descendants, too numerous to count. And then the angel tells her about her future. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child. She knew that. She was showing. You will have a son. She didn't know that. 
This is the first ever ultrasound right here. First ever birth announcement, supernatural ultrasound. And she doesn't have to go to any weird websites to figure out the child's name. Look at the next part of the verse. You will name him Ishmael. Maybe one of the most significant statements in this passage. Do you know what Ishmael means? It means God hears. Look what happens next in the passage. It says, here's why you're going to name Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. Apparently in her struggle, traveling out in the desert alone as a pregnant woman, walking for a week, she cried out to God. And the angel, the one who comes to her, the Lord Jesus Christ, who she says the God sees and I've seen the one who sees me, says the reason why this all happened is because you cried out and I heard. And so I want you to name your child Ishmael. Now think about this. Every time she says the name Ishmael, she remembers God hears. So when she's coddling him, after she feeds him for the first time, she rubs his face and says, Ishmael, God heard. God heard you cry. And when he gets in trouble, when he's a teenager, Ishmael, in the midst of the struggle, you remember, God hears. So what should you do? You cry out to God. And then we get some more descriptions of this young man. He will be a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) Well, I... I'm not so sure that's great. <laughs> Wild donkey. What does this mean? I mean, some of you have kids, and everybody's kids look different, right? Babies are all cute, right? Or that, or you think they're all ugly. Depends on which perspective you come from. But all babies don't look the same. Some of them have hair. Some don't have hair. Some of them open their eyes. Some don't open their eyes. I've never seen one look like a donkey. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Going to the, you've got to go to the dentist. Or even having teeth. Yeah, and that's, yeah, what does this kid look like? Uh, big teeth? <laughs> a funny laugh? <laughs> I don't know. The text tells us here what it'll be like. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Many people believe that this is the beginning of the Arab nation, Ishmael. And he'll fight against the Israelites. Isaac will be born later. Abraham, the leader of those people. And we still see hostility between those people groups. You only have to read a couple chapters to see the hostility happen. After Isaac's born, and then later, in a a few chapters in Genesis, uh, Joseph's going to be trafficked. And guess who takes Joseph to the Egyptians when they're trafficked? The Ishmaelites. Joseph's one of Abraham's grandsons. There's a battle that's going to take place. There's going to be a tension there. It's not Hagar's fault. You know whose fault it is? It's Sarai's fault. And you know why? Because Sarai didn't cry out to God. Because Sarai decided that she knew the best plan and she tried to work that plan out. So she takes something that she thinks is good that doesn't really belong to her and she gives it to her husband. And it's Abraham's fault because then her husband passively goes along with the situation instead of crying out to God. And you know what happens later in this passage? We read verse 13 a bunch of times. I've seen the one who's seen me. And then she names a well the same thing. Verse 15, if you have a Bible with you, I don't think we have this verse on the slides. It says, so, Ab- so Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. The language of that is this. Abraham gave the name Ishmael. Who was told the name? Hagar. So you know what happened is that Hagar went back. And she told Sarai, you abused me and you did those things to me. But let me tell you what happened to me. I went on the wilderness and I cried out to God and I had an encounter with God. Not you, Sarai. It's a rebuke to Sarai. And she probably said, and now I'm here back and I'm going to serve. And I'm going to willingly serve you. And I'm going to name my son Ishmael because God hears. And then she goes and she tells the father of that child, her master, Abraham, that God told me we're supposed to name this child Ishmael because God hears. 
And you didn't cry out, Abraham. She didn't have to say that. He knows. Later, his son Isaac struggles with infertility. And in Genesis chapter 25, you know what we see him doing? Crying out to God. So Abraham at least learned the lesson and taught it to his son. Cry out to God. Don't take matters in your... Don't do that. Don't do what I did. And cry out to God. You don't think Sarai in that situation thought to herself, why are you not answering the promise? Why are you not doing what you said you're going to do? So here, I'm going to do my thing. You know why God didn't answer the promise in the first 10 years? The first 20 years? It was 25 years after he made the promise. You know why? The Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12. Because he wanted Abraham to get so old that he'd be as good as dead. And he didn't think 85 was old enough. So he waited until he was 100. And from this one man, and he as good as dead. Do you know why? Because God wanted to get all the glory. So the struggle had to continue because God had a plan. And it was a plan for the future. And it was about way more than Abraham and about way more than Sarah. The same as probably most of our struggles are. More than just what we see and more than just what's happening in our little lives. He's got a global plan to reach this world for Christ. And so what does he want to do? He wants someone to go through the struggle so that he will then receive the glory when he shows up. Why do you think it is that David, when he goes to fight Goliath, has a slingshot and not a shotgun? God could have done it. Could have given him an Uzi if he wanted to. You could have done anything he wanted to do. Why is it that when Gideon's going to go to battle, he says, you got too many men. You've got to whittle it down. 300 men. Why is it that when Jesus goes to feed 5,000 people, he doesn't you know, pop up a Tuscan restaurant right next to him with a bunch of pasta there? That was close enough to Rome, right? They could have done it. He takes a little boy with five loaves of bread, two fish, so that God gets the glory. Later in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul has a struggle in his life. And maybe his struggle was the same as yours. We don't know. We see that three times in the Bible, he says, God, take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. And three times God says, no, no, no. But then God tells Paul, why? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, I'm enough. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's when, you're see- when it's noticed that you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough talent, you can't fix this on your own, that when it happens, I get the glory. So Paul changes his perspective. He stops asking for God to take it away. He stops asking for God to fix it. Could God have just given a child to, to Sarah? Yup. Could he have just fixed Hagar's circumstances? Yep. But he says, you go back. And he waits another 15 years for Sarai. And Paul gets it. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, my struggles, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So that I don't just fix my problems, so that God shows up. And how does he show up? We cry out to him because God not only sees, God hears. He doesn't just see our struggles. He doesn't just see our future. He makes our future. And he hears from us. And some of you have struggles. You need to cry out to God. How many struggles we have in our lives because we haven't cried out to God? You don't have it because you didn't ask him to take it away. But if he doesn't want to take it away, then have him use it. James tells us in James chapter 4 and verse 2, all the stuff that we struggle with and we go through in life, you want something, you don't get it, so you kill and covet. You cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. And all the problems that we cause in our lives, you don't have because you don't ask God. That's what happened with Sarah. That's what happened with Abraham. Hagar, she cried out in the desert. And God heard her cry. Ishmael, God hears. Some of you have a struggle and you need to cry out to God. Some of you might be, your struggle might be being a mom. And it's difficult. And you know you blow it. And you don't have patience. And you do get angry. And you do things you wish you didn't do. And some of you aren't moms. 
And you need to cry out to God too because you have struggles as well. Some of you, your struggle is you wish you were a mom. Some of you wish you weren't single. Some of you wish you were single. Some of you, some of you, somebody said something. One of God's people has hurt you, has done something to you, and you have needs, and you need to cry out to God. And so what we're going to do as we conclude today is we're going to spend a couple moments doing that very thing, crying out to God. And if you have a, a need in your life, I'm going to invite you to stand up. I'm going to pray for us. You don't have to come down here. I'm going to let you stand just in front of your seat where you're at. But I want to pray for you, specifically those of you that will stand. And so the worship team is going to come. They're going to begin to play some instrumental music here in just a moment. But if you have a need, I'm just going to ask you to stand up. And the rest of us, just all of us, bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you've got a struggle in your life and you want to pray for it, you're going to cry out to God about it, just stand up in your seat where you're at right now. I'm not going to ask you what the need is. I'm not going to ask you to come down here, but I want to pray for you. Some of you might have pain in your life. You want healing. You need to stand up. Some of you might need strength. You need to stand up. You need peace. Stand up. Some of you are just in the battle. And it's a battle with sin. Or it's a battle with your circumstances in life. And I want to invite you to stand. And if you're across the hall and you're in Theater 14 right now, I invite you to stand as well. I'm going to pray for you. And if you're watching online at some point, if you're able to stand, you stand. You write in your car. You listen to a CD someday. Just raise your hand. Like you're acknowledging to God. I want to cry out to you. And we're going to cry out to God together. And I'm going to pray some words in just a moment, but you just cry out in your heart the specific things that are happening in your life right now that you need to bring before the Lord. And let's pray. And so there's still people standing up. If you want to stand up, you can stand up. And Father God, I come before you. I thank you that you are a perfect Father, that you are a loving Father, that you are a heavenly Father, and that you see, and you see everyone who's standing right now. And you see what's going on in their lives. You see the struggle. And you provide, you provide yourself. I pray that everyone who's standing today, you give them an encounter with you, a special blessing from you today, that they would not only know that they're seen by you, but they would see you. And God, you would have their hearts cry out to you in worship, have their hearts cry out to you with whatever the needs are that are represented right now. God, I pray for our moms that are standing. I pray that you would, you would intervene in the situations that they're standing about, that you'd show up, that you'd meet them just like you've met Hagar out in the wilderness. And Father, I pray for the men that are standing. I pray that you'd meet them. I pray you'd speak to them. I pray for those that are standing that need peace, that you'd give your peace that passes all understanding. God, I pray for those who need strength, that you'd give your strength, that we'd cast our burdens on you because you care for us, that we give our stuff to you and you'd give us rest for our souls. God, we come to you and we don't want to have difficulty in our life because we didn't ask you to take it away. I first and foremost ask that you just take it away in anybody's life. You just take it. But if it's your will, it's your plan, that it's there, I pray you'd use it. I pray you'd use it to chisel away sin in our lives. I pray you'd use it to bring people to the saving knowledge of yourself. I pray you'd use it so that people would see your glory. I pray you'd use it, like Paul says in that passage, that we would experience your power. God, I pray for everyone that's standing, everywhere, that will hear these words. God, make yourself known. Thank you for knowing us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.